Uh, welcome back, everyone. And if it works to have your video on, it's great. I love to be able to uh, see people. If that can work for you, if you, some of you may have bandwidth issues, but if it works to have your video on, it's nice to see people. So again, uh, good morning and good afternoon. You know, perhaps uh, good evening for some. Today, uh, I want to do something that I've uh, done from time to time, which is to talk about the most important spiritual topic of all. Are you ready? It's okay if some of you say, I, I can't stay for that. <laughs> so this will be on the most important spiritual topic at all. And you might consider for a moment, what am I going to talk about? Maybe love or wisdom or transforming our greed, hatred, and delusion. <clears throat> and those would be uh, wonderful topics, but what I want to talk about uh, is deepening daily life practice. And I'm going to talk in particular about eight ways of deepening daily life practice. And for quite a number of years, I've really thought that this is the most important uh, topic. You know, we often talk about our practice in the insight meditation world, and we are referring to our formal meditation practice. And that can, it can be helpful, of course, to develop formal meditation, but that can also be uh, in some ways, missing the larger point, which is that if we, you know, we can ask people, how's your practice? And they say, oh, it's great. I'm doing 20 minutes a day. But clearly, the center of our lives are particularly all the waking hours, maybe 16 hours. And if our practice is going to really mean something in the long run, we have to see it manifest in our daily lives, in our work, our relationships, our cooking, our being with children, being with family, being with the social and political world and so forth. How do we, how do we do that? Uh, you know, for the last probably 10 years, that's been an important focus, although it was an important focus really from the beginning, but it's been maybe sort of uh, an increased focus because I, I was, um, was very interested when I first started meditating. I loved meditation and I got very deeply into it, did a lot of retreats and deepened, but it was really clear that sometimes in terms of my relationships or how I was, 
in ordinary settings, it didn't always uh, transfer or there were issues, right? You know, and I, there was sometimes it felt like a dichotomy between the one and the, you know, between the formal meditation, especially retreat time and daily life. So it became really important. And I actually, after a lot of retreat time, I, I took a job and went out to live. And eventually it was seven years in rural Ohio and then in uh, Kentucky teaching. I actually had uh, college and university positions, including at the University of Kentucky. And my real emphasis during those years was how do I make this real in daily life? And yet that hasn't always been an emphasis. It's, and, and, you know, there's been, even now, you know, we can have those discussions. How is your practice? Oh, really good. I'm getting half an hour in every day, right? How many people have heard those kind of discussions or even talked like that? So, again, the formal meditation is important, but it can be uh, a way that, uh, to speak or to act that obscures the importance of, of our daily lives. Uh, and I think it's also, you know, as, as we'll see, it becomes also a reason to emphasize uh, community, as, as we do here on our, our Wednesdays. Community can be, be a great support for the daily life practice. Um, you know, and it's, it, that being said, it's hard for most of us, given the kind of culture we live in, which is very quick, uh, very mental. You know, I often like to quote something from uh, the Thai forest tradition teacher, Achan Buddhadasa, whom, uh, who I, whom I got to meet when I studied in Thailand. And he once was asked, what do you think of Western civilization? And his answer was lost in thought. Interesting, right? And of course, some of that thought is helpful, but it's a very, very mental culture, and maybe even more so with uh, all the phones and devices and computers. You know, and some of us spend hours and hours in that realm. And when I, you know, actually, when I, when I take walks around my neighborhood in Berkeley, I like to say hi to people when I pass them. But about half of them are looking at their phones. <laughs> it's a little bit startling, you know, and probably very important things, right? You know, but it's, it's and again, it's in itself, I'm not criticizing that, but it's, it's really, uh, are we using all of that skillfully? You know, and, and it's also a challenge in this culture to emphasize daily life practice because in many ways, we may feel mostly on our own. How many people feel that at times to, to implement the, the practice? So um, I want to name these uh, challenges. Uh, also to mention, though, that the emphasis on daily life practice is there in, in monastic traditions in Buddhism, in the Thai forest tradition, and it, 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 that emphasis is there, you know, uh, that uh, this, is, this is from Achan Cha, again, the Thai forest tradition teacher, whom I got to study with for a short time and was, was the teacher for Jack Cornfield. He said, everywhere you look, 
is the Dhamma. Constructing a building, walking down the road, sitting in the bathroom, or here in the meditation hall, all of this is Dhamma, meaning the, the teachings. When you understand correctly, there is nothing in the world that is not Dhamma. So how do we develop our daily lot practice more strongly? And what I want to do is mention eight different ways that I think are very, very central. And I want to invite everyone to listen for the one or two that most call you. Not to try to do all of them, but maybe one or two that you could really make an effort with in the next week or next month or next six months. Okay, so here they are. Uh, eight of them. And maybe I'll come back with this theme when I'm next in, speaking in, in July and, and see how we've done. And I should say also that there can be a continuity between what I'll explore today and what we explored in uh, May. I gave two talks there on how we make uh, really our daily lives uh, I think I used the, the words the words sacred or sacramental, or we could use other words. How do we fit those with our practice? How do we see the power and beauty of our daily lives? So it was a little bit different focus, but it really very much connected with what I'll explore further today. So the first emphasis I've already named, it's really the importance of being connected with a community in some way. Such a powerful support for, for daily life. And this can happen in a number of different ways. Being with a group like ours every week makes a difference. We get a period of formal practice in. We uh, connect with others. You know, when we, when we meet with a group in person, we may actually uh, get to know people. We can uh, communicate with them. A really beautiful practice that probably some of you do is to actually meet with, uh, have something like a practice friend that you might be with on the telephone or maybe electronically on a regular basis. You know, some people may communicate with a friend. How are you doing? How's your practice going once a week? What would that be like? I have a friend myself who I communicate with roughly once a week. We take half an hour once a week and we talk together. And, you know, we're peers and it really makes a difference. There's also um, almost like a dimension of accountability, right? I, oh, I know I'm going to talk with my friend. Oh, better get it together today, <laughs> right? Or do a little bit more or something like that. So there are dimensions of accountability, which very important dimension of our practice. How many people have something like that? Anyone have something like that? Well, that's quite beautiful. You know, it could be a could be a partner, could be a friend, could be a mentor. You know, um, you know, I I work with people usually on a monthly basis, and that I think plays a role here. You know, it can be how do we how do we get support from a community? Can many again many forms could be. Uh, in a group like now, like we're doing now, online, in person, 
There are a lot of opportunities, particularly for online meetings. You know, if one wanted to, you could meet several times a week. I know when I was in my initial formative period, I was living in Boston, I would go to two or three or sometimes four groups uh, a week, you know, and it really was a great support. A lot of friends, I would go with friends and could be really, for me personally, it was really, really made a difference. Uh, and there's also something really important about being with the friends. We start to see that our challenges or our stuff is very similar to that of other people. One of the problems, you know, sometimes with our practice is that we see our challenges or difficulties more clearly, and we can get a little bit hard on ourselves, right? We can be hard on ourselves and think, oh, I am kind of, you know, got a uniquely problematic mind or history. Anyone sometimes feel that? Yeah, that's it's a lot of us. And, you know, I, I see that when I work uh, with some of the uh, groups that I have on transforming the judgmental mind, one of the benefits of those groups is that we share very widely and we can see how, you know, all of us have the places we get stuck, get knotted, get into being hard on ourselves, judgmental towards ourselves or others. And we come to see it more as shared material that we, and we are not uniquely a problem. Really a crucial dimension of community to see, I am not uniquely a problem, you know, you know. You know, contrary, I remember there were, some of you may remember the old uh, Peanuts uh, columns. There was one time when uh, Lucy was, not everyone probably knows this, but Lucy had her, had her gig as a psychiatrist and she would have this little table and she'd say, the psychiatrist is in. It'd be in the cartoon. And one time she told Charlie Brown, the problem with you, Charlie Brown, is that you're you. And his response was, what can I do about that? And Lucy responded, you know, I don't, I only give diagnoses. I don't give advice. Sorry. <laughs> right. And so, but we can, we can really have that, uh, uh, sense that we're all in it together. Such a powerful aspect, whether it's with one other person or a community or some mix really crucial. Second, a second way to deepen daily life practice is to increase the number of formal sessions when we're focused on formal meditation, even if they're very brief. This can be a help. So for some people, they find it really helpful. Maybe they do a morning meditation session. Maybe it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and that's pretty consistent. Maybe we add 10 minutes in the evening before you go to sleep. If you do that regularly, it will make a significant difference. What having sessions do is that they kind of weave the day together and they remind us to be aware. And so, you know, I, I often, you know, more often than not, I try to have at least five or ten minutes before a meal. So for me, it's a nice period. It might be for you be before a meal 
when I just uh, sit quietly, you know, and again, that, that kind of multiple short, even short periods makes me more likely to think to be aware in the flow of the day. Again, just do what, not to do too much. Just, you know, I'm, I'm saying these things so that we might just see what calls me, not to do them all, not to do all of these eight things at once, but again, one or two of them. And just take it so it doesn't feel like you're demanding too much of yourself. But you're just, you know, all we want to do in our practice is to take the next step. Not to take all the steps, but just to take the next step. That's really, really crucial. And again, and there are different ways. Another way to do that in a very small way, if you notice your mind going into a, a difficult place, your mind, your emotions, body going into a difficult place, and it's possible, pause for two or three minutes. Give attention to what's happening, and you can even ask the question, what's a wise way to respond right now? Could be interpersonal challenge, could be you know, bringing up something that happened yesterday, whatever. But just to sometimes to pause and to feel Take a few minutes. Pausing is a tremendous practice. If we pause two or three times a day, just for a few minutes, when something comes up, can be really, really, uh, really, really helpful. You know, and then for some people, it's helpful to have something like a Sabbath practice, where you take uh, a day or half a day or even a few hours on a regular basis and devote it maybe to sitting, walking, listen to a talk, take a walk out somewhere, be with awareness. That's the second. A third way to deepen practice is to, again, just to see which one or two call you. Uh, a third way is to have a special focus on one or two activities to which you bring awareness or mindfulness or loving kindness. Could be that I say, I want to, for the next few weeks, I want to uh, bring awareness to cooking or washing the dishes or brushing my teeth, you know, or uh, even getting dressed. I remember an old... Uh, story from the Hasidic tradition, the Jewish Hasidic tradition, where, where a teacher talked about learning from his teacher, and he said, I didn't come to be with my teacher to hear his words. I came to watch how he tied his shoes. Interesting, right? How did he tie his shoes? And he said, I learned a lot from that. Right? And so we could focus on any one of a number of activities. Uh, could be we take uh, one meal a day in silence and just taste the food, much like we do if we've been at a retreat or a day long. We could do something like that. You, you know, maybe you take uh, a walk once or twice a day. Have the walking be a time for practice. You know, several people I'm with have, uh, who I work with, have young children. And 
they take their time with their young children, I'm talking about five or younger, as times to bring in particularly loving kindness, you know, and to particularly be helpful when there's some sense of irritation or impatience, which occasionally happens with parents. Anyone notice that? <laughs> A little bit of impatience or irritation could occur. And so, you know, I have, uh, I know one, uh, one person I work with has uh, a young child who uh, had a number of, uh, you know, uh, when he was in his first uh, six or eight months, he would wake up quite often at night, which is very common. And uh, my student said, you know, I went through a period of being really irritated. Oh, my sleep is interrupted and found that irritation. And then partly from our talking together, he decided I'm going to take waking up in the middle of the night as a time for loving kindness practice. And he shifted, you know, and he really, you know, he, you know, of course, could be some irritation or impatience, but generally speaking, he would remember virtually all the time after that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm up now, time for loving-kindness practice with my child. Quite, uh, quite, quite beautiful, right? Could really, wow, um, that doesn't happen with all children at all, right? You know, and so very, uh, very, very beautiful. So can I focus on a particular activity? What activities call you? Again, could be very simple, could be something that adds up to 10 or 15 minutes a day. But make that a form of practice and, and see how best to do it. You know, maybe just to be aware when you're walking, just, uh, you know, do walking meditation. Be aware of the body somewhat. You know, do loving kindness practice. Again, uh, I have several people I work with who are in the medical field, and they bring loving kindness to... Um, being with the people they work with in the hospital, right? Loving kindness can really go well into the helping professions. If any of us are, you know, in some form of the helping professions or parent or whatever, loving kindness can be quite beautiful. It really, when we get good at it, it, it goes well, it goes fairly easily into daily life. That's partly why I brought it up. Uh, if you want to have it be kind of live and active, do at least 10 minutes a day and it, it can be there more and more in the activities. The fourth, I've done three, and you may have, you already may have found the one or two you want, so you may have your fill of all these eight, so, but we'll see. I'll, I'll do several more. Uh, the fourth is the importance of being aware of the body as a way to be more present in daily life. When I was first coming into uh, teaching, I remember having a conversation with a person who was mentoring me a lot, uh, John Travis. And I, uh, I complained to him about not having as much support as people at monasteries. I think I had been recently, you know, in Thailand. I said, you know, they have it easy. They get a lot of support. No, it's not easy. And he said, let your body be your monastery. 
meaning let your awareness of your body, which can be there a great deal of the time, be something that lets you be more present. And we, we actually did a lot of body practices for several years. And he gave me the guidance when I would be in the teaching role, be grounded in your body, be connected with your heart, and let your thoughts self-organize. <laughs> interesting, interesting guidance, right? Uh, but but the, that key way of being in the body, and for, for me, it, you know, it uh, was something when I initially started practicing, I was a student, and I was uh, off in the mental realm most of the time. And so my initial practice really, in a way, was revolutionary. It told me I could be aware of my body. And I say that as someone who was very physically active, you know, as a younger person. You know, I was involved in a lot of athletics. Uh, I was actually, for 10 years, a competitive swimmer. Very active physically, but I wasn't really aware of my body. And so coming into the awareness of the body really changed things, but it's, it's an ongoing practice because of the high degree of the culture being mental for many of us. And so having a way that we connect with our body can be really important, like the, you know, taking walks, doing walking meditation, you know, um, you know, could be, uh, you know, one simple practice is if you're at a meeting or you're listening in some way, even here, right today, keep awareness of your hands or your feet, which is a pretty accessible way to be aware of the body. You know, you can do that, you know, when you're at a family gathering, you know, have a little bit of awareness of the hands. See, there are a lot of simple ways. It could be a whole focus for many sessions. How do we, how do we develop awareness of the body? You know, there, there are many ways to do it. Uh, you know, be a, you know, a good starting point is to be aware of the hands or the feet in some situations. Like, like I say, even right now. And not, you know, not necessarily 100%, but just, you know, keep 20%, 30% of your awareness on your hands or your feet right now. And you're connecting with your body. And <clears throat> I have found that over time, as I develop more body awareness, I could bring body awareness. I have to remember to intend to do it, but I could bring body awareness even into um, conversations, into teaching, into, um, into discussions, you know, and it can really, it can really work, and, but it takes some attention to, to the body. So really, really crucial, and I think especially crucial for daily life. It can be a thread which can be increasingly there, but it, it, it can take some time. You know, it depends on how much uh, body awareness we have, but it can take some. It can take some time, but just start where you are. It could be, you know, if you do yoga, take a walk, do uh, some kind of body practice. When you do that, keep awareness of your body, and it'll build. Or you could really uh, have, as part of your formal meditation, have some awareness of the body. You know, with being with the breath is part of that. That's connecting with the body. Uh, the fifth way to deepen practice is to work with a teaching in daily life. 
as well as to do that in formal meditation. So this will connect what we did in the guided meditation where I suggested, we had about a 10 minute period, for this period, work with a teaching. And I gave you your choice of choosing which teaching, but I also highlighted a really fundamental teaching of working with a sense of pleasant or unpleasant when it becomes sort of moderate or a little greater. You know, and that is right at the heart of all the teachings. You know, as I've mentioned from time to time on Wednesdays, you know, this very simple teaching is that when we have something pleasant happen and we're not aware, we'll tend to grasp. When we have something unpleasant happen and we're not aware, we'll tend to push away, whether it's at the bodily level, whether it's at the level of emotions and thoughts, I have a difficult interaction with someone, that person says something mean to me, I come right back saying something mean to the person. You know, kind of with the idea that if I do that, the person will stop, which doesn't usually happen. <laughs> right, so, they're, you know, and so that can be a beautiful teaching to look out for that in our formal meditation, look out for that in daily life, watch out for moments when we're uh, caught in reactivity when I'm caught in being judgmental or blaming of myself or others, when I'm, when, you know, when I have maybe difficult emotions that get into uh, reactivity, we could take that as the starting point for practice. Let me set my radar to notice those moments. And that, that can be a beautiful, powerful daily life practice, right? Just to notice that. A lot of people I work with do something like that. Look out for those moments. That's one teaching we could work with. And there are others. We could work with, uh, you know, just the teachings about mindfulness and just say, let me just have more mindfulness during the day. One practice that I uh, used to do, you know, at meetings, I would keep a running mindfulness log, when, especially when I wasn't, you know, uh, in a leadership role, when I was just at a meeting, I would uh, have a running mindfulness log. I sometimes write it down, you know, and say, you know, present, meeting going well, content, and then later, getting impatient, irritated, negative thoughts developing. <laughs> and so just the mindfulness of that can be how, you know, how does that change us, really? Because, again, one of the ways we talk about mindfulness is that it has a protective dimension, which is kind of obvious from my last example, right? When I notice that I have negative thoughts developing, I am probably less likely to say them. Okay? Mindfulness has a protective dimension. So we could work with... Uh, we could work with that. We could, you know... Uh, a teaching called the Eight Worldly Winds kind of is a version of the teachings on reactivity. It says, look out particularly for eight different conditions when they arise. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, something good happens, something bad happens, fame and disrepute, and then praise and blame. Those all tend to lead to reactivity. We could work with those eight. That could be a beautiful practice. I'm going to look out for those eight. 
that's my you know, my main daily life practice. That would be quite uh, quite beautiful and powerful. I'll mention those again. Pleasure and pain. These are called the eight worldly winds, sometimes called the eight worldly conditions. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, through what's called fame and disrepute or having a good reputation or a bad reputation with these people or those people. And then lastly, praise and blame. Those are pretty big. Can we know how those, sometimes it seems like those run us, right? Those control our lives sometimes. How many people can relate to that? Those being really, I think they're called eight whirly winds because they blow us around, right? So we could say, let me pay attention to this. You know, and again, I'm mentioning a lot, um, but, uh, and this possibly, this could be, uh, this could be a five-year curriculum or a one-year curriculum, right? To, to deepen practice. Another, another practice is to work with uh, challenges when they come up. This is a teaching, this is from the Tibetan tradition, transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Yay. <laughs> Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. You can put that on your refrigerator. So, okay, so that's the fifth. Here's the sixth. And I've already in some ways mentioned this. It's bring the heart practices into daily life. And probably many of us do this in different ways. Bring the qualities of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity and gratitude and forgiveness and empathy, have those be uh, a way that you proceed in daily life. Again, supported by, I would say, at least 10 minutes a day of a heart practice like loving kindness. But bring those into your practice. I mentioned how they're amenable uh, if we're in something like the helping professions or maybe with, with family we can decide to, to bring those in on a regular basis and it can really work well, especially if we practice that 10 minutes a day or more. It can really be there. I have people I work with who bring loving kindness into uh, driving. I personally uh, often bring forgiveness practice into driving. I'm not, I don't drive much these days with, you know, with uh, a lot being... On, on Zoom, but I drive some and uh, to bring, you know, oh, you cut me off, you know, and watch any irritation and can do forgiveness practice on the spot. You know, I think I've sometimes mentioned that I also do forgiveness practice if I am uh, curt with telemarketers. Anyone get telemarketing calls? Okay. Some of us has, have ways of screening them, but uh, if I get impatient with a telemarketer, uh, I can do forgiveness practice on the spot. That can be that can be helpful. Uh, driving, you know, just finding an activity where you do where you do loving kindness. You know, I think I've mentioned sometimes that I do loving kindness practice when I go swimming. You know, I I still do lap swimming a lot, and uh, I think I've mentioned you know it's typically uh, one being per lap. Works quite well. So, uh, okay, that's number six. Number seven 
is find a way, if you can, you can do this maybe every day, at least for a short time, to touch something which feels deeper to you. Maybe it's to touch that loving kindness. Touch your sense of a really quiet mind. Touch a sense maybe of connection. Maybe you go out and you're uh, in your garden or you go to the forest or you're in a community or you're with other people in your family. You know, kind of tune in to that sense of connection. So touch something that's deeper for you or a sense of love. See what helps, see what helps uh, touch that. And touching that in a conscious way every day can be a great reminder of what's most important in our lives. You know, for most of us, and I think that, you know, we could talk about this whole practice in a very simple way. We are centering wisdom, love, and compassion, and bringing that into our activities in skillful ways. That's it, right? And so can you find some state of kindness or warmth that reminds you of that every day? Probably meant most of us have some ways that we do that. How many of you can relate to that in some way, that you touch in some ways those deeper intentions or deeper motivations? You know, I find myself, uh, I have a phrase that I use uh, often a few times a day, you know, particularly in relating to others, where I say, let me be kind, empathic, and present. Right? And just it's kind of, it's a way to, to bring that in. And then the last one is one that I gave at the end of the silent meditation today. And this is something I learned from the uh, Tibetan tradition where it's called mixing or mingling practice. And what it is, fairly simple in concept, is basically to stabilize more informal meditation, maybe at the end of a sitting, and then try to keep the awareness or the quality of your heart or whatever, keep that going in what comes in right after the meditation. It's a very interesting practice. Uh, you know, I, I've done that at some retreats with Tibetan teachers where they gave us practices that they, that they teach in the Tibetan monasteries. And one of, you know, some of it's almost even humorous. Like one of the ways they teach this mixing practice is they teach it in terms of uh, states of uh, basically body, how, how is it, uh, body, mind, and speech. And for each of those, what we do is you first stabilize in meditation, and then you bring your awareness into body states first, and they talk about doing it in terms of skillful, neutral, and unskillful body states. Very interesting. So you stabilize, like say, in awareness, maybe a lot of mindfulness, a lot of awareness, and then for them a skillful 
body state would be maybe doing prostrations or something like that. A neutral would just be walking across the room. So you stabilize an awareness and then you walk across the room. That's what we did in the retreat. And then the third one is with unskillful body states, like where you punch someone. Can you see all these uh, monastics at the, uh, at the monastery? They stabilize an awareness and then they go over to the person a few feet away and they punch them lightly, right? That's actually what they do. It's kind of, kind of I had, it was really kind of fun. And they do the same thing with states of speech. So you would, you would uh, stabilize an awareness and then uh, let it flow into your speech. And so they would do, maybe they would say a mantra or something like that in the monastery. And then they do neutral, which is maybe talking, you know, like... Uh, you know, what's for lunch or whatever. And then the third one would be unskillful speech. So it actually, they would stabilize the meditation and then they might do the equivalent of what we, what we might call trash talking. <laughs> At the monastery. Anyway, I, I thought that was funny. And then the same, same thing with uh, thoughts, you know, skillful thoughts, neutral thoughts, and even unskillful thoughts. The, the, the aim is interesting. It's actually... Can you have awareness even when you lose it? That's, that's sort of the deeper meaning, right? But I found that very interesting. For us, I'm not suggesting we do all of those nine practices. But what we might do is at the end of formal meditation, let it flow more into what comes next, maybe for the next 10 minutes, right? Or maybe it could be if you have a difficult conversation with someone, do 10 minutes of meditation before you have that conversation and then see if you can have an effort to let it mix or flow into uh, that discussion. So we're really talking about sort of taking advantage of the energy and the power of the formal meditation, but find a way to keep it going into what comes next. So maybe you, you know, uh, you know, it could be like I meditate before I eat, and then I try to keep it going in preparing and eating my meal, keep that awareness going. So, so very, very simple. Um, so let me, let me finish. So maybe, uh, maybe should I, maybe it'd be helpful to review the eight that I've mentioned, you know, and so uh, the first one I mentioned is the importance of community or friends just could be one person we meet with and could be a mix with, uh, you know, groups like, like our gathering here. The second, increase the number of sessions, even in a small way. That helps thread the intention to be kind or to be aware through more through the day. Number three, focus on a particular activity or several activities as a place to bring in your practice. Number four, the importance of the body and the importance of body awareness in daily life. So to strengthen body awareness and find ways to bring that in. Number five, working with a teaching. It can be done both in formal meditation as we did earlier today, or it can be done, or and maybe I should say and or, it can be done in the flow of the day. You know, let me look out for reactivity. Let me look out for 
pleasant and unpleasant, being strong, and so forth. Number six, and again, there's some overlap with these, bring in the heart practices, uh, you know, if possible, even in a small way every day. Number seven, find a way to teach, to, not, to, not to teach, to touch your deeper motivation, your deeper, uh, really in a way, your deeper nature. Find a way even briefly to touch the aspiration for love, for compassion, for kindness, for uh, wisdom, and so forth. Find a way to touch that, whether it's in formal meditation or maybe being with uh, beauty. You know, could be music or art helps one do that. Could be being with a child or all sorts of things. That's number seven. And then number eight, find, uh, find a way to mix or mingle the formal meditation with the activities. Find a way to mix those. Sometimes by really having the activities come right after the meditation and you set intentions like we did earlier today to have there be a continuity. So let me finish and we can go to some discussion. Let me finish with uh, two quotations. One is from uh, Shabkar, a great Tibetan teacher from the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. He said, let your life and practice be one. Let your life and practice be one. And then the second is from a well-known great teacher named Sylvia Borstein. <laughs> okay, this is, uh, this is really about the way that we have to bring the practice in every day and we keep going. So this is what she says. It's clear to me that my journey from confusion to clarity and from closed heart to open heart is one of continual arrivals and departures, a lifelong process that happens over and over again every day. I'm fine with that. I love the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, the message of the story that arriving at, at freedom and happiness is a possibility, reminds me that I too can arrive even if it is again and again rather than once and for all. I can arrive at that experience of clarity in which I am happy. So let's sit quietly for a moment and sort of let whatever was helpful and or resonant be there for you. And see if you're drawn to some of these eight ways that I mentioned. Or are there any of those you'd like to bring in your own way into your own lives?
and then also see if there are any any questions anything you want to share maybe of some way that you work with one of the eight or something like them And let's open things up now. We'll start with uh, Vivian and then Nancy. Please, Vivian. Yeah. Okay. All right. There we go. Now I'm unmuted. <laughs> Carlene, I see you looking. Okay. Um, thank you. Okay. Donald, you've talked about this topic before, and I've taken it very, very much to heart. Yeah. I'd like to quickly mention three things that I've been doing um, as examples uh, under your headings. Um, one is that um, I watch for the hindrances, mm -hmm. and the thing that really helps me get through it when I when I realize, like, oh, ill will, this is a hindrance. I'm a mess. I'm angry, blah, blah, blah. And then I say to myself, this is a hindrance. This is not personal to me. This goes around in the world. Everybody experiences these things. Yeah. And then it's easier for me. If I notice something as a hindrance, I can let go. Another thing is that I, um, I notice Vedana. It hasn't been talked a whole about a whole lot, but as a feeling tone that every time we do something, we're left with the positive, negative, or neutral after it happens. So for me, I notice that after uh, I have an, a dissatisfying interchange with someone, that I'm left with a kind of bad feeling, and then I notice that the next person I talk to, I'm not as kind as I could have mm, been. Yeah. And, then, so, and then I go, oh, Vedna, I'm still hanging on. To that feeling that I had at the end of the last conversation. Yeah. So that that teaching has been really helpful. And then one more, I use I use the Dharma Seed org on my computer and the Dharma Seed um, app, and I listen I listen to things all day long. Yeah. And I've been learning about and working with Anapanasati. Mm -hmm. And learning about the idea of you having the breath meditation or the breath, focusing on the breath, mindfulness of the breath, no matter what else I'm doing. So I can breathe all day long, focus on that, and still have my life. That's been a real eye-opener. I don't think that's been talked about much on, on the Wednesday meetings, um, but... I, I guess I think I picked it up on dharmacy.org. But, yeah, there's, I, I mean, I'm going to stop because I just have all these things going on in my daily life. And it's thanks to you, Donald, well, to come started. Thank you. Thank you, Vivian. To have all those three going uh, regularly, such a support, you know, just uh, all these constant reminders looking for, you know, the hind so-called hindrances, the difficult energies, uh, you know, being with the sense of pleasant or unpleasant, you know, that very, very rich, you know, in a way it's, uh, you know, especially you're finding helpful working with those teachings and the, and being with the breath, you know, and taking that as a thread. So 
Thank you for sharing that. It really sounds like it's, uh, they're all working for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Nancy, please. Thank you, Donald. I love this topic. Um, it, I was on retreat once um, with Sally Armstrong, and in a practice discussion, I was telling her how enchanted I was with learning how to eat mindfully, that I put my fork down on the plate in between bites and how wonderful that was. And she said, yeah, Nancy, practices are really good when you do them. <laughs> it's not just knowing about them intellectually, but you have to actually do these practices. Um, so here is here is where I run into run into difficulty. Um, the the of the eight practices, I noticed that mingling came last, and to me, that is the most difficult one of the of the eight that you mentioned. And um, when it, the, the it, last it, one, like mixing or mingling. Yeah, mixing or yeah. mingling. Yeah, it is the most is the most difficult. And in DPP last month, our focus was mindfulness of the body, and I chose to take on the practice of being mindful of bodily postures yeah. um, as my way of being mindful of the body. And even though I had a really strong intention to do it, I found that it was fairly difficult to do, that I could go hours at a time without being, being aware. And when I was analyzing my experiences, I found that that when I tended to lose it is when I had a destination or a task yeah. to do. And when those two situations came up, I would lose my mindfulness. So I'm hoping you've got some wonderful tip that will help me mingle my state of awareness and mindfulness into my activities more successfully yeah. when I'm faced with a task or a destination. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh... And how many can relate to that one? I think, I think so many of us. Um, what comes to mind is uh, something I actually learned also in the Tibetan tradition. I didn't mention it so far today. But it's, it's um, looking at the various activities that we want to bring practice to or awareness to and clarifying which are easier which are moderate levels of difficulty and which are harder. And so you, you know, and, and starting with the easiest. I mean, in some ways it's kind of common sense, right? But, but what you can find is, are there activities where body awareness, let's say, is easiest? Are there, yeah, you know, for me it's when I'm sitting. Yeah, when you're sitting. Then not just not just sitting in meditation, but just sitting physically sitting. It's much easier for me to be mindful of my bodily posture. Yeah, so so the you know this particular um, teaching would suggest make a list of you know from the easiest to the hardest. You know you have you know whatever five activities, ten activities, and put your energy especially on the easiest because that's where the capacity will grow. If you put your energy continually into the ones that are of moderate level of difficulty or more difficult, it's way, way harder to, to, for the learning to take place. That's, again, from one perspective, kind of obvious, but not something I heard much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is helpful. It also helps me feel more successful. 
in what I'm doing. That's right. Yes, there are times when I can do it, and then maybe I can build on that That's success. That's right. Build on where it's easiest, you know, which could also mean build on it for a shorter time, an easier, mm -hmm. shorter time, and let that be the where you start, maybe where you put a lot of energy for a while. Yeah, excellent. That's very helpful. Thank you, Donald. Yeah, thank, thanks, Nancy. Uh, Victoria, please. No, thank you, Donald. I love this topic, um, and it's a great segue after the sacramental um, talks that you gave before, which I also love. Um, wait, can you just tell me the, the, the refrigerator thing again? Um, <laughs> the transform, the Tibetan, uh, you said it was oh, a Tibetan. the Tibetan phrase. Yeah. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Okay. It's transform. from the Tibetan Lojong teachings, which are a bunch of slogans that uh, different people have done some books based on them. I think Norman Fisher did a book based on the Lojong teachings, which is available. Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R, who's a Zen teacher. Yeah. Okay. Wait, can say this? say the saying one more time, please. Transform all obstacles into... The path of practice. Path of pa practice. And it, Lojong is spelled like it sounds? Uh, L-O-J-O-N-G. Okay. Yeah, and so you could find, I think Norman Fisher did a book. There are other, uh, you know, it's Tibetan tradition, so our Tibetan teachers have done some books on that. Okay, great. And then the other question was, do, um, do you know which, which book um, of Sylvia's that was from, that quote? Not only do I know the book, I know the page. Oh, <laughs> <happens>. okay. <laughs> uh. Uh, it's from uh, Pay Attention, For Goodness Sake. Okay. Page 17. Page 17. All right. Fabulous. Okay. And and Shabkar, was he a poet? Or was um, he, or, or am he, I mixing him up with someone else? No, I think you're thinking someone else. He was, uh, you know, he was more or less, you know, uh, a meditator. I don't know if he was a hermit or whatever, but he was... Uh, he was just a very deep practitioner and teacher. And he was in the, the 18th century, you said, end of the 18th? He was born, I think, yeah, I think he was kind of from, he was born in the latter part of the 18th century and lived maybe towards the middle of the 19th century. Okay. Uh, okay. S-H-A-B-K-A-R, so you could you know, take the name and learn more about Shabkar. Right. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks very much. We're getting towards time. Maybe anyone else had wanted to speak? Or share something? Okay, well let's let's go towards our closing. We'll do this in a few different ways. First, to bring to mind what may have been helpful from today. And any ways that you'd like to bring what was helpful from today into your own practice might be related to those eight ways. But there might have been just an insight that you had, even unrelated to the topic. Maybe an insight came during the meditation or some sense of direction that's just uh, very important to you, but not even related to the topic per se. 
So see what was helpful or important from today. And anything you'd like to keep going as a practice, as a, a focus. And then we'll close with the traditional dedication of merit, which is a practice really about intentionality, about our intentions. It reminds us that we practice very much for ourselves, and may there be benefit from our time together for ourselves, but also we practice for others. And invite the benefits from our time together to be there for others in our own circles and then beyond, ultimately going to all beings. And so we offer the benefits of today for all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. Thanks, everyone. And we also give a big thanks to Carlita. Hey, hey, Carlita. And Thank feel you, free Donald. to uh, unmute. And we could, could uh, say in our own ways anything we want to say, say goodbye, and so forth. So thanks so much, everyone. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, everyone, you. for being here. Have a question. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Carlita. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Yeah, bye bye. Thanks so much, Carlita. My pleasure. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.